0: connections cast brought to you by tdn australia and new zealand Hello, I'm Angus Rowland and welcome to TDN AusNZ's Connections cast, long-form conversations with leading thoroughbred industry figures presented by Newgate, raising top-class racehorses. Today's guest is a bit of a legend, though he'll hate me saying that. He has guided the careers of some leading industry figures, both human and equine, he'll probably hate me saying that too, and is one of the Bloodstock Games most considered thinkers, he'll definitely hate me saying that. Modest, hardworking, and with CV written in stone and soil. Peter Orton, it is terrific having you on Cast. Word is that you may be in need of an ark up there. How has the farm weathered the deluge it has been subjected to over the last month?
1: Very wet, Gus, yes, but uh, we can put up with the, with the water because the country looks unbelievable at the moment. There's grass everywhere, the trees and the gardens look spectacular. So we can put up with wearing gum boots for a few weeks.
0: It's probably preferable to two years ago when it was as dry as a bone, right?
1: Yeah, we went through um, three years consistently and it was basically down to dirt and uh, it was very challenging and uh, we got through it okay because we've got good water in this area. We can keep alive and keep young foals with a bit of green grass under them, but a lot of local farmers, even cattle farmers, were walking off farms because, you know, even in an area like the Hunter Valley, some of those cattle farms just ran out of water. It was extraordinary.
0: Yeah, absolutely brutal across New South Wales. And
1: it seems strange to
0: be talking about floods now, but that's, uh, that's this great southern land. I, I want to explore the farm a little bit more, which you sort of teased with the, your access to water. It's, it's been more than two decades since you helped establish Vinery in the Hunter. Cast your mind back to those early days. What sort of a farm did you inherit from an infrastructure and, and a shape of, of property standpoint?
1: Well, there's been a horse farm as everyone knows for quite a while and the period that had gone through um there, there wasn't quite a level of um, redevelopment going on so the maintenance that we were faced with and an old farm that was built in the old the old ways with everything all congregated around the homestead mm. um you coincided the re, uh, repairs and maintenance to the place in with redevelopment so we changed the following areas and the stallion areas around and, and we went from the old style farms where they stood four stallions and that was a big farm in those days to these farms where they've got 10 or a dozen sort of thing. And um, um, so we had to deal with um, walking mares and a, a change of everything. So we changed quite a bit and repaired a lot on our way. And um Changed a few things along the way from the management perspective and um, development of farms has certainly got to come from the, the level of management control as much as it is uh, for, for the aesthetics of it all. But, um, you know, we coincide all that and it's been a good farm for a long time and been producing good horses. So it it is a spectacular property in itself. So mm. with that, you can certainly get the best out of it
0: you said it yourself this is a land with a real history to it from potter mcqueen through lionel israel and on through the the bubble days into to george hoffmeister and, and dr tom simon talk me through the process of building the farm up You've, you referenced the homestead it's 200 years old or something like that that was converted into an office so i remember the old stallion area it's now it's been used to house younger horses and then you established a whole new stallion barn. What was your process, infrastructure-wise, in, in building the farm up?
1: Uh, I think um, anyone who's been well, the original property, the no property as it is, was twenty thousand acres. Is it the whole no Valley, including the farm, you know, Tarunga Farm and Arrowfield, all that right across there? So, it's a spectacular um, stretch of land in its day. Um, it was a large convict community, and so a lot of buildings would, were erected in those times. Um, and Anyone who's been to the farm, there's got a, such a great feel to it, it's quite palpable. So we, anything we did, we, we did in, in, um, in line with that. But as times change and business has changed, there's different approaches, and uh, where the stallions were was too congested, so mm-hmm. we moved that and moved an entrance for trucks to come in and, and those sorts of things as you do um yearlings are becoming a bigger presence and, and um, the mainstay of your new sales and, and presentations. So they were located where the, the old stallion barns were and, and redeveloped. And our following, was, following areas needed to be a lot bigger. So we, we opened that up into new country as well. So balancing it out and spreading the farm out so we could specialise for each particular role um, it is the key to setting up a farm. And, um, you know, even in the days when we first started with mayors, you had issues of viral abortion and those sorts of things. So the development of all the backcountry was done with double fencing and, and um, dealing with um, management of um, uh, quarantine and, and um, health of horses. So there's a few changes that where the requirements come on you as, as things change. You've got to change a few your facilities to match it.
0: Yeah. I mean, in a way, this, this property was a little bit different to some of your earlier projects, which I want to touch on later in the chat, but the, the, the reverence for history while moving with the times that you've referenced and the necessities of running a modern commercial stud, how do you convey that reverence to a Dr. Tom Simon, who's not from Australia? who doesn't have that sort of knowledge of that, that convict history and, and that sort of thing. What are the discussions like in developing a farm with somebody from outside Australia?
1: Well, I think um, when they get to, to secure a property like Binary, um, it was you know it's one of the iconic farms through history. So they the people that come into this business and, and Tom Simon was like this, he had uh, great respect for the history, great respect for the industry and also had a, a passion for, for opera, having a facility and operating at a level that was respectful to, to what, what the property was and, and the mm. level of what wanted to do. So when you've got that harnessed, from my perspective, it's a good start, and, um, and also just to be going forward and to um, develop your property into a you know, state-of-the-art facilities and, and something that you can be proud of. So a combination of respecting the history um respecting the name and um and putting in place a facility that's going to take you into the future um if you're you know you must have a long-term view in this whole industry so everything you do you must look to where it's going to go in the future and and he grasped all that and he was a very supportive man and very passionate about the industry so what he did in his time for the time that he was involved in it um with me starting here was a, you know, a great asset for this farm and for the industry, really.
0: Did you have somewhat of a, a free hand in developing Burner?
1: Yes, very much so. Um, as long as you, you know, kept him well and truly in the process of where you were heading and what, what that was going to cost, um and, and what the outcomes were um he was dependent on that so he had respect for me and I had respect for him so was, we worked worked well together and got the job done very efficiently
0: this podcast is brought to you by Newgate raising top-class racehorses Newgate has built a reputation not only as a leading stallion farm but a leading stallion nursery In the last few years alone yearling buyers could have purchased stallion prospects of the quality of champion first season sire better than ready. Vinery Studs Coolmore Studs Stakes winner Exceedance, Jubawi's Group 1 winning champion two-year-old of South Africa Willow Magic, Group 1 McKinnon Stakes winner and young Western Australian sire Awesome Rock, Cambridge Studs champion two-year-old Sword of State and Newgate's very own champion two-year-old and Golden Slipper winner Stay Inside. Newgate Raising and consigning top-class future stallions. We, we talked a little bit about about the the, the building infrastructure, if you like, and, and you touched on the need for developing the backcountry and and uh, the, the fencing work. And, and one thing I've always observed on my visits to to Vinery in the good times, whether what was it seasonally. Um, speaking, is that it's a very, it's a lush property. What sort of work did you have to do and you and the team have to do in terms of uh, pasture management and, and and that sort of thing?
1: Um, pasture management, we basically um, redid the whole thing. And it was not a case of grass, it was a case of spending a number of years bringing the structure of the soil up to its natural, um, natural level and where it could um, Give what it always gave, and and the beauty of this Sedgemoor Valley when you look at the trace elements and minerals that in here is very well balanced. So you're not chasing yourself, adding to it or buffering it, or and that's the beauty of the Hunter Valley to a fair degree too. That's mm. you know, is why it's so successful. Um, but certainly approaching it with the view of getting the pastures, it's a it takes a little while to go through the, that process. And um, water irrigation, I mean very old system, so a lot of that had to be replaced, and um, just the, the whole place in general that had a fair maintenance level on it
0: what, what was your order of priority? I mean you as a, a a working stud manager and GM, which did you do first, or were you just trying to sort of keep all the balls in the air and, and, and get things up to speed simultaneously?
1: Well, the stallion area and our following area were were, um, critical points that were in need of of, um, fairly quick movement on it. Um, The stallions were sort of tucked in around the old system and there were too many and trucks were all coming in the front drive and clogging it. You know, if we were going forward and standing in a number of stallions, it was a nightmare. The um, following area was down in an old and um, swampy area and certainly couldn't, couldn't operate to the level we would like to operate at and certainly couldn't handle the numbers we were heading towards. So we had an opportunity to start a fresh bit of ground, fresh country and um, and broaden our facilities there where we could really, because these foals are worth, you know, this is the real deal. It's, it's what you're trying to get. It's what you've got. Look after that and uh, getting these foals on the ground and the, the level of bloodstock we had, uh, we wanted to make sure that the facilities we had really matched the quality of the stock we had.
0: Now, this wasn't your first rodeo. This was your third or your fourth. You know, you You've helped to develop a few farms, and we'll, we'll step through that. But I want to go back to the nascent days with John Massara at Middlebrook Park, standing the outstanding juvenile rancher. Tell me how you first came across John and what the challenges were for you when setting up Middlebrook Park, because he would have been quite young then, Peter, yeah. Yeah?
1: Yeah, I was quite young. I was actually in America when um, working in Kentucky at the time and uh, it was a very interesting time in the industry because the the money in the bush and the farming had moved to the city. You had a group of young um, businessmen that were really ahead, the likes of John Massara and um, uh, Brian Agnew and mm. Michael Cecian and Philip Espin and all these guys that were in their mid-30s at that stage and, and they were starting to dominate and they had – they brought into the industry a, a whole different level of business, a whole different level of marketing and approach, so it was a really interesting time. And then the, from the time I was, I started in, in the Hunter in Taronga and um, went to America, and then when I came back, a lot of the farms had changed. You know, the owners had moved on or whatever, or died or whatever, and um, you had a lot of young uh, managers on these farms, and, and we all sort of socially got on, mixed a lot of information, so the level of... Um, mm-hmm of information and professionalism went up, you know, tenfold. So it was a, just a whole different approach. And and the way we approached the farms and, and certainly, you know, when I left Australia, we were competent what we were doing, thought we knew what we were doing. And, then you go to, you know, America and field like that and you, you see the scope of where this industry could go and, and a lot of young people overseas at that time coming back and really injected a lot of enthusiasm into the industry at that time.
0: Yeah, you, you you had exposure to greatness in, in Kentucky. You worked at Walmack, which, for those that don't know, Warmack was a superstar in the 80s. Uh, I had a look in 1982. They had stallions of the calibre of the Star Kingdom descendant Shecky Green, Mizwaki, champion two-year-old Monteverdi, dual arc winner alleged, and a smallish Group 3 winning son of Northern Dancer who was in year two or three of his career named Nureyev. That must have been a really formative experience for you,
1: Peter. Oh, it was a massive experience, and to deal with that level of horse and uh, and, and to get on with them and uh, make a mark over there was was a hell of an opportunity. And uh, we were working in the stallion barn and seeing these horses at their height and the mares were coming to them and the people we were dealing with was very, that's what I mean, when it certainly broadens your perspective. So tell me about the Middlebrook
0: Park years. This is your was it your first stud managing gig?
1: Yeah, and I uh, came back with John and was the partnership of three, an accountant and a, and a businessman from Hong Kong, that were and John were in partnership of the property. They had rancher, John had bought, they'd they had bought some high level brood mares, um, mares off the track who we weren't having a great run with them. And um, John had approached Phil Redman who was running Tarunga, to to find somebody that could help him sort of take it to the next level and that's when I was contacted in America to, to, for that opportunity and um, got back there it was a, a farm that was you know it had steel, steel posts and uh, old old barns and things like that and we had rancher we um, set about redeveloping that farm and pretty well built it ourselves it was three of us and they just had this whole new breed of um, people coming industry It was quite an exciting time and. Um, the opportunity to be involved and, and the just the level of marketing we were doing and refenced it and we painted the fences black and yeah. uh, considering the area was white it was it was um, it was quite a statement. There was another guy called Mike Hugh who was at um, at Wakefield and he had been in Kentucky too and he painted his fences black. So these young upstarts that have been overseas painting their fences black was quite a drama, but um, certainly kicked off and. Um, changed the, the, the um, landscape of the area. But, it certainly um, did. I
0: mean, it's, it's surreal to think that the, a simple act of painting a stud fence black was revolutionary. I mean, you, you're, in, you're in America, right? You're, you're working on a farm. But surely rebuilding a farm was a step up. What did you learn during those Middlebrook Park days that you've carried through to now?
1: because I come from the from the field basically and we um, with working with horses and my, my background is um, general farming and working with stock um, my four days is, is working with the, with the animal itself and uh, and farming so under I'm appreciating the land and um, I think every facility that you set up you've set it up that you can run it efficiently on your own and then when you've got people it becomes super efficient mm. um, a few of those sort of things you when you're doing all the fencing yourself you know you certainly know which is the right way to do it and the wrong way to do it um we've we've sort of progressed through that period and uh and and learned to to get someone else to build it so it's too hard to work yourself but that side of it but um yeah just understanding the that everything you're doing the quality of the timber you're using the the, the shape of your paddocks. Um, you can build the safest fence, but it's it's always the social groups that you put together that make the difference in in, in um, safety of animals and those sorts of things. So um, putting a paddock in a natural lay of land for the understanding stock, the way they look at it, um, and that you can move stock safely. So um, you, you're trying to manage a, a lot of horses, but you're not treating them like cattle. You've got to have that individual care and and facilities that are going to be going to be there to protect the um, the value of the stock and the, and the health and safety of the stock too.
0: Buy better as part of the Inglis Yelling Sales Series in 2022. Since 2018, Inglis has produced more Group One winning graduates. The winners of more of Australia's million-dollar-plus races, the winners of more Australian group races, more Group 1 winning Colts, more Group 1 winning Phillies and more Group 1 winners who could have been bought for $100,000 or less than the next best auction house. Inglis, buy better. Let's talk about the birth of Arrowfield. Jerry's Plains, combining the old Strohan property and the Arrowfield vineyard. Talk me through how that came about, why the move from Middlebrook, why establish a farm there, and what did you have to do to get it to the the level that it needed to be to welcome some pretty impressive incoming stallions?
1: Well, considering John started with seven yearlings and 11 broodmares and rancher at Middlebrook, it um, progressed pretty quickly. And what I was speaking about before, this level of, of business and thinking that someone like John Massara has, um, he said, well, I can't keep buying a couple of fillies to race and buying the odd broodmare. To- this is going to take me forever. So these you know, Sydney-based guys, they've got no, got no time or patience for that. Yeah. So he, he certainly identified how to do that. And, and um, he said, well, approach different breeders and buy the whole operation. You now He bought out the Rob Sengsters breeding stock in Australasia which was massive. He mm. bought out um, Jim Fleming, which is Stone Lodge property. Um, he had a beautiful brood band of broodmares. So, like every broodmare band, you know, you, you'll have forty um, percent very good, thirty uh, percent you know medium, and then probably um, another thirty percent you've got to you know, cull off. And uh, so, putting the broodmare bands together and um, created quite quite a, a powerful broodmare band and then um, with the contacts in New Zealand with shares in Tristram at the time and we had about 70 mayors based in New Zealand and and then John did a deal with Rarora and became a partner with Rarora to base our mayors there um, so it was a, a lot going on and then being a stockbroker and from what I understand one of the leading stockbrokers in Sydney at the time um, so well, this is a vehicle for me to to drive my business and he there was an old, there was a company operating in the Australian Racing and Breeding Stables which was a publicly listed yeah. company mm-hmm. with that came some further assets of bloodstock <clears throat> so he was collecting up a lot of these businesses which was you know such the thinking that goes into that and someone like John who can think so far ahead of the, the game was to be put together um, by by then pulling all the resources together and, and aligning them and putting them together. This was the whole process. So we went through the, the buying out of operations. Um, we actually owned the Stone Lodge property for a while, which went across the Pages River. And half we s- was sold to Kiora, which is, you know, created the old, you know, the full Kiora back together. Mm-hmm. And the other sold to Sejano at the time. So, and, um, and it made the Sejano property bigger too. So, and then, um, you know, just keep, kept putting all the brood mares together. We had a lot of mares in New Zealand. We had yearlings, flying backers and forwards for sales. So there was a hell of a need. We've got a 340-acre paddock up in, at Middlebrook Park. It was not going to handle the sort of numbers. So we went looking for properties mm-hmm. and um, found Woodlands, that beautiful property, and got to the auction. And Ingham's walked into the room, so we left. Um, <laughs> so and then um, we heard of this other property, which was... Um, 3,000 acres, 7 kilometres frontage to the Hunter, um, but only had a very small balance of flats. We're up on the hill and we looked across the river and saw this unbelievable patch of land, the Arrowfield Winery. And um carpenters from Western Australia owned it at the time when we are losing money on it. So again, the stockbroker went into gear and purchased the property for very little money, in my opinion, and um, we set about, the vines were all broken down, and there's about 800 acres of vines we pulled out. We had tractors running four hours a day. It was It was the most exciting project that um, for a young person to be involved in, and um, and the opportunity to build something that was new. You know, even right down to the stallion barns, which was you know the, the old style of Australia was just single boxes and all separated, and stallions you know get. And I just learned in America that they're all in big barns. They all, you know, they had a bit of company and they all relaxed. I and mean, we that's where we started building the big barns with all the stallions in together. And um, um, and they were much better settled. And and then we built polling areas, two different, you know, home mayors, visiting mayors, yearling areas, all in different areas. So that's sort of several farms within a farm. So that way we could specialise in our management and you could have... Specific teams because you've got different requirements for for each you know, level of horse. So you could, you want to have different facilities, um, different sort of approach with people, and uh, different levels of care. So um, it was a hell of an opportunity with a bare paddock to just go and do that. Yeah. So.
0: Absolutely. But, I mean, there, there was only a sort of stone building essentially where the where the sort of centre of the farm ended up being located. And and as you said, part of it was had been doing growing grapes for most of
1: its uh, yeah, existence. The, there was a yeah, little two-story building that had a cellar underneath where, and had a ghost and uh, a homestead there. So it was very good, but uh, we didn't disturb the ghost. We pulled all the old homestead, which was dilapidated. And, um, yeah, it was at that stage again. But the infrastructure that was already in place with someone like Carpenters coming in was certainly needed attention, but... You just can't pay for that sort of infrastructure that they had there, so it was a hell of an opportunity. And um, as I said, we're at a stage where with the whole block, which is um, what was it, about three thousand acres, a bare block, you know, you could do what you like to a degree. So, um, and then you you have a team behind you. It was a public company at that stage with a board, of, you know, with a board of directors mm-hmm. and a group of guys like um, Philip Espin and Ross Smithkirk and Percy Sykes. I mean, just just guns that um, just drove this business way ahead of its time. So it was um, a very, very interesting, exciting time.
0: I remember seeing and having an old Arrowfield VHS at home and I think it must have been filmed at an open day or something like that and Bob Hawkes there and all of these luminaries. What was the energy around that farm at at, at the time when you
1: were kicking off? Well, it was massive because it was ahead of its time and um <clears throat> created a lot of interest for everybody. And John was a great marketer as well, so everyone knew about it. Um, it was also at the time when Bob Hawke had, um, with Colin Hayes, had brought, had got the, um, the appreciations going through the industry, which put an enormous um, shot in the arm for that. So John got Bob to come up and open it. And he duly bogged his plane on our airport, so apart from that. But uh, um, yeah, there was a, it was the who's who of the whole industry and, and everyone turned up. It was a great day and we paraded Dane Hill and uh, um, so it was a, was, a, was, a, was a big deal and it was a big deal for people to be there, the local news, news channels and everything were on the, on the job. Were, were there sceptics?
0: I, I feel like tall poppy syndrome, a, a farm like Arrowfield at that time would attract a certain amount of tall poppy.
1: Oh, uh, absolutely I think um <clears throat> that's a bit of the nature of the game, but it's not too bad i mean i don't I don't think we did anything that really you know pushed any pushed anyone out or hurt anyone, so mm. you get a little bit when you've got a flashy group of people and driving hard and some people you know enjoy them when they trip, but um you know these guys had um had broad shoulders so they drove us through but no I, um i don't I didn't feel it at all i you know the people that a lot of the industry said oh god I remember we come in and you showed us the plans and things. They're, they're, everyone the industry in general were quite excited about that development at the time and and I know that when John Magner, when that period came and he came out and first time, I think only time he'd been to Australia and, uh, um, and he sort of looked around and you could just see the change. He knew what it was could be and knew where he was going to go with it and for sure mm. but the, he's, a, he's a farmer himself. He could it's a beautiful stretch of land, and uh, he could identify what you know what it is and how far ahead of everything else it was at the time, um, and that that's how people talk. So I didn't feel much negativity at all. I think um, you know, generally there's a bit in the industry, but there's you know, people appreciate that and appreciate where it's going.
0: You referenced looking at the plans there, and and you earlier you talked too about taking inspiration from the American style stallion barns and the way you laid out the the housing for the, for the, uh, the money makers, if, if you like. That's all well and good, but what experience did you have in terms of actually building this stuff? Who were you leaning on? Did you, did you, did you have architects come in and tell you what to do or were you explaining the vision?
1: What, what, what happened there? Well, I think um, everyone, like everything, you've got to, you know, stick to your role and, you know, get, yeah. get the best people for what they're good at, and when you step outside that, you get yourself into trouble. We had a project team on the job, and they are professional in the way that they set it up, the way they approach council and DAs and the whole thing. I mean, that's a whole different area that you don't want to be involved in. We had, with that came a group of architects, and architects can be, they can bring so much flair into anything that you're doing, but if if they control everything, they end up building a monument to themselves. So there's a (laughs) little. There's a little bit of a, a, a buff there with um, and we had a landscape architect with a girl who was an English girl who was very good, but we had a group of people who were prepared to work with us. And, um, and my responsibility, I guess, using my skill set was the animal. So I I worked on the footprint, the size of the boxes, the length of the width of the lanes. Ah, I, yeah, yeah. I mean, everyone's got an opinion about what color roof should be or, what, <laughs> or whatever, but and I think um the Masara family had a lot to do with it as well. I mean, I know John's wife, Chris was involved in a lot of the a lot of the stuff, the you know landscape and things too like it went went forward fairly well. There was a lot of work and a lot of you know it was twenty four seven but um it it did go quite smoothly. We had good people around us and uh and the outcome I mean, you know you can always see all the mistakes you made, but it, the overall thing was pretty fair at the end of the day.
0: 2022 sales season is fast approaching, and if you want integrity you can trust, you need a Federation of Bloodstock Agents Australia accredited member. FBAA members are guided by a strict code of ethics, making them accountable in all dealings and giving confidence that you will be represented to the highest possible standard. For contact details of FBAA agents, head to bloodstockagents.com.au and secure peace of mind today. Let's let's fast forward to 1996. A move necessitated by the rise of a supersire, uh, which we'll discuss later. sees Arrowfield relocate to an area that your old mentor, Dr. Phil Redman, had a farm in the vicinity of, and you're at it again. How was this one different from Arrowfield version one?
1: It was a little bit of a change in the way John wanted to go with it. A little bit, he didn't want to be quite so big, and um, uh, he wanted to have a smaller group of horses and. The, the buying the property in the first place was to have a, have a um, an operation to to handle the young horses and you know a racing operation. But then when circumstances changed and it needed to be the, the central farm, um, we bought the old Tarunga farm from Phil Redmond. and um, and for two years we we were standing stallions down at um, Jerry's Plains and at uh, Tarunga while we're, we're at Airfields today. So it, again, it was a, a loosened farm. It had a, a training track on it down the down below the office where you, where all the mares and foals are now. But it was a loosened farm, so it was relatively clean. It, uh, the, the, um, fa- the man that bought it was a guy that built a big homestead, and uh, there was a few nice things about it and a very small horse little horse corner of horse yards and stable and things. The rest of it was. Um, uh, loosened paddocks which made my job you know getting the pastures up and going a little bit easier and we bought right. the block door which is a little bit thicker so um and then it sort of developed and um and I'd, I'd laugh at the time when i showed john my sketch for the stallion paddocks i said and then we can progress down there as we get more stallions. he said oh we don't want any more than five or six stallions i'll give you a stat <laughs> deck that we'll do but anyway at uh such as the nature of the changing business, but it was a beautiful bit of land again in the Seginano Valley, which is in my opinion is, is, the, is the heart of it the best bit of country that I know. And um, And we set about again, brought our um, project teams and architects in and, and um, we had a whole array of local contractors we'd work with. so it was so easy in that sense. we just you know called a mate and he did it and made the job very quick. Um, and again, we just changed the focus of it all changed a few things around and um, probably went you know did it a little bit better, but uh, certainly more efficient
0: efficiency that's that's what I was going to ask has has each successive development project that you've worked on been easier or just different?
1: Uh, a bit different I think um, I think um, you've got to adjust to the to the landscape and i I say this to people that say oh i'm I'm trying to build a farm can i come and look what you've done there or i said we'll go and look at different things but most importantly look at things of why people did it you know they put it in for a particular reason and where you're building will be different again so you've got to work out why you're going to do something so Mm. we had um, a lot of hilly country uh, down at jerry's plains to put mares out in the off season and not much up where our field is today so sort of access more land and, and develop that hill country for mares and foals and you know to get there for mares in the off season to get on and little things like that. But it was yeah, it was a bit more boutique um at um in the Sejina Valley, whereas the Jerry's plains is a massive, you know, massive spread. Um it wasn't you know it wasn't as big a cleanup job. Um, so yeah that was a, a bit more straightforward and and we progressed and picked up a, a different blocks. But uh John Masara never stands still, so it's always something something new that you've got to deal with every time. So it was um always exciting, but um um but a beautiful bit of land, so it it was kitted up very nicely. When you see these these stallion properties with big
0: stallion barns that 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 do tend to follow a certain form and perhaps that's function related rather than than anything else, but Uh, other farms that you haven't worked on that have perhaps
1: taken inspiration from the farms you have, do you take pride in that at all? I think it was, you know, it's an international type of approach and I think, um, as I said, it was a very changing world and, you know, I'm not the only person that got onto it. Like, it was obvious where it was all going. We went from probably about 20 farms with stallions on it down to five. It's only natural that we would go that way. And we, I mean, I I remember in... um, Sort of uh, middle book days, walking a mare into Biscay at Bema. Well, Jesus, you know, <laughs> they treat us like lepers. I mean, the thought of someone walking a mare into a farm was just unheard of. And uh, so that's that started in those days. And so th- you look at different things around the world or around the, the states and see what is efficient, what would what would work well for you. Um, you make those changes. So I think when anyone setting up a farm if they're going to have a number of stallions they're gonna to have to you know a heap of trucks coming in three or four times a day and so you've got to start setting up facilities where you can manage those you've got a covering barn access to the stallions and um, and that sort of thing and certainly building the barns was the way that the way to go and um, uh, those sorts of things but uh, I, I, you know I don't think I'm Robin's script that was pretty obvious that where people would grasp the concept but uh, mm. Um, but probably what I do look at is the trees we planted. You know, as you, as you sort of look back on that, and certainly leaving leaving Jerry's plains, which um, was was devastating for all my team, and uh yeah. the the years that went into it. But you go back there and now and see trees that are two or three foot across the, the trunk. I mean, they're the sort of things that give you pride in what was done, and you know, you just keep moving. You can't sit. This industry. You sit still for a minute, you just get run over. So the, the, the beauty of it is that you just keep thinking, keep progressing, keep looking, you know, laterally, and, um, and there's so, you know, so many things that you can achieve. Let's move on to the reason we're all here, the horses. You grew up in Victoria
0: with a, with a background that was around that quintessentially Australian creature, the stock horse, right? You, what did you learn back then that was, has carried through to now?
1: I guess we were we spent you know any time working on the farm was always on, on horseback and then of course we would uh, go and visit mates we would, we had a team of horses and we, we were just on horseback that's our way we got around and the way we we, we um, socialised as well plus we did a bit of sport stuff on the offside as well so I mean any any young bloke on a horse is going to compete with everybody else um, and, but we were just basic. Um, Country kids and uh, sheep and cattle farm and um, and and just a lot of horses and horses were a pretty big, big focus for us, but certainly wasn't thoroughbreds. But um, I was um, sort of took time off after HSC and breaking in and and started breaking a few thoroughbreds for the local for the local butcher actually, and um, and they were just a different animal for me and they're just an elite that uh, that's what sparked my passion for them. So I've followed them ever since.
0: I hear part of that early journey involved a boat ride to Indonesia or something. Is that right? <laughs>
1: yeah. I took a um, uh, d- three pallets of horses across to Indonesia on a ship that took two weeks to get there, and uh, uh, they stood in a stall the whole way. It was quite an experience, and and again, just um, these horses—the way that they behaved and the way you kept them happy—and uh, was was an education in itself, and and what what they're capable of doing. And, and, um, and as I said, they've, you know, the horses arrived in better order than they left and, and yeah. they were happy. That, um, but that was an experience. And the year before that, I took a, a plane load to um, the Philippines. And it's actually the first time I've been on a plane. I sat on a milk crate behind the pilot. And, um, so you know, it's just travelling horses and, and how resilient and what they can do is, uh, is always an education.
0: Wow, and you're a tall guy, Peter. I imagine uh, it wasn't exactly first class. The horses were probably travelling better than you.
1: Yeah, they were pretty happy.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, you, re- you referenced Wormack, uh quite a bit and, and we talked through some of the stallions that were there. Uh, what were your impressions of, of those great horses? I mean, you didn't come from a thoroughbred background. It was a lot harder to access information about the global game than it is now, but you're working with a two-times ARC winner and, and a stallion like Nureyev, who I'm told was incredibly charismatic. What,
1: what, what were those horses like? I mean, they, they were breeding in Kentucky for Europe. That was their big market. It was a bit like us saying, we we're trying to get horses to go to Hong Kong or whatever. You know, you're, you're looking for a niche. Like America's wow. taken just breeding for themselves now in a different mm-hmm. sort of but you had that northern dancer line. We had, we certainly were well aware of the, the the level of what an arc was, and to have a dual arc winner there it was so famous, and uh, and a horse like for what he was doing um, was pretty special. Um, but it was interesting to see some of the local horses that um, that were a bit different, and um, it was just a mixture. There was a bit of a time as a bit of a mixture. The European lines were there, but. Um, a few of the American breeds are starting to, to get a hold and, um, um, because they're starting to you know, dominate on the dirt and things like that. So it was an interesting crossover period.
0: Yeah. What did so, you make of the early shuttlers? Arafield had Ken Mare and and Bellotto and those kind of horses. Sejano had Last Tycoon and ah, Nora, I think. And Colin Grove obviously were right at the forefront. They had God's Walk and Bluebird. Did you foresee the phenomenon taking hold, or did you think it might be a bit of a fad?
1: Well, again, Robert S- Thanks to who who did so much for our game and with Colin Hayes. Support um, him started that with down that It was, you know, got reasonable following and um, was quite interesting. John saw the potential of that and he went and bought Kenmare out of France. I mean, to go and buy Kenmare out of France, he was the leading sire over there, it was a big deal. $7 million, Ken in those days was a lot. And the Dane Hill, we, we had Ptolemy, like $4 million was about the maximum you could, you could syndicate a horse for and stand them for to get some return. But then to do a shuttle, you could do double that. And then, you know, the Danehill, the one with John, was idea was um, Sellers Wells was standing for you know hundred hundred fifty thousand guineas. So, it was more you know if you could tap into that market, it was massive. So, Danehill was the one that he found, and and um, and he certainly dominated out here. But it was at a period when our resources were a bit light at that stage. I mean, the Star Kingdom line was really weakening now. Masque was. The last, the last hurrah, he was, he was probably the only one. But you could see that uh, if you got a horse that was worth, I don't know, just pick a figure, ten million dollars. Everyone knew it was worth about ten million dollars. You're going to bid ten point two. You might win, but certainly um, these guys, but John and Kumore, these are the guys thinking of it. They could go in and bid fourteen because they could shuttle a horse, and that was the difference. You could actually, so that part of the market that really the shuttling horse. Um, had an advantage. You had dual income, you could actually pay for a better horse. Mm.
0: World champion sprinter Harry Angel, an electric dual Group 1 winner with the precocity to claim the Mill Reef Stakes at two. Timeform rated 132 more than Star Stallions exceed and excel in Frosted. A son of outcross sire Dark Angel, Europe's answer to I'm Invincible. With outstanding first yearlings hitting sales rings this season and some of Godolphin's best mares in his early books, now is the time to invest in Harry before his offspring take flight. I put it to you, Peter, that in your career, you've been associated with several excellent stallions, but two of those, I think, fall into the great. And we've talked about Dane Hill. Let's dive into him a little bit more you've you're on record as saying his, he taught you a lot what what did dane hill teach you
1: uh just with temperament um and, and you've got to have the right temperament to handle what these shuttle horses had to handle especially in the early days where the you know the health of the airflow air on the horses on the planes weren't quite the same and stress is a stress is the most actually stress right across the board with everything we do is, is the most the key to everything um, but Dane Hill had just the most amazing temperament and he set a, a benchmark for other horses to live up to or impossible to live up to. Um, I mean, he was the most casual horse. Um, from the day he stepped off the truck, it's the only time I've seen him stirred up a bit and he pranced off the truck. And, and um, the only time I've seen that, the aura that he came off him was it was palpable. Was uh, but... As a horse, he was so easy to handle. He was so good to work with. His fertility was always good. and um, So that sort of thing, and walk back onto a truck and walk, you know, get on a plane and eat his dinner and watch a movie, and, and he was there.
0: How did the, the, the famous blind auction make you feel? How did you take that, the result of it?
1: Um, in this game, you... You do what you do every day and hopefully that you're doing enough to survive and, you know, all the horses. Have, and, but you're everyone at the end of the day is um, hoping for that big one to step up and, um, and come out of the pack. And when you finally get one, after all the work we'd done and then then to, to lose it, um, it was pretty tough. It was very tough.
0: He, he continued to have a metaphorical impact on you, I guess, through his sons, Dan Zero and Flying Spur. Were recruited to the Arrowfield fold as stallions. I mean, Flying never really left it, and there was an incoming reduced choice, you know, on the horizon when you when you left. Was there was there ever thought there's too much Danehill at Arrowfield for for you?
1: No, there was never a period where that was really a problem. Certainly, we we got a hell of a lot out of Danehill. We spent a lot of time with him, and we bred a lot of good horses by him, and. Certainly, we got our, got a lot from him in the short time we had him. Um, but those periods, I mean, remember those two stallions did a season in Victoria and, and they weren't necessarily dominating. I mean, I remember when I first came to Viner, we went the outcross way because of so many sons of Danehill, but people were critical of, of Flying Spur and Dan's And I said to Tom Simons, for Christ's sake, we can get two horses that way, and look as good as they do, and win the Golden Slipper, and people still criticise them. Where the hell are you going to buy a yearling as good as that? So, the, um, so no, I think that, um, like any, you know, it was a, It's like the Star Kingdom, you know, it was a dominating, the dominant sideline, line, so everyone was on it. So, um, but certainly have two Golden Slipper winners, nothing wrong with that.
0: It should be said, too, that Arrowfield experimented with an array of shuttle horses. Yeah, Kendor and Unbridled Song, Timber Country, I think Hector Protector was there, Chief's Crown. How, how did the non Danehill horses prepare you for, as you said, Vinery, which was almost an outcross farm, a very cosmopolitan roster right from the off?
1: Yeah, I just thought if we're going to have any chance of, um, of being competitive, when you think of what stones are at all the farms around... The outcrosses already had Red Ransom, and that was fortunate. I was able to get um, Mossman soon after, and then cost more than ready. So I thought, well, if we're going to get a niche in the market, a point of difference, um, there's a real opening for that outcross down in now, because there it was like 60 or 70 Danehill Suns at, at that time. So not much use going and getting another one, but um, trying to trying to be a little bit different and, and add something, something. Well, you know, we went for an outcross.
0: Yeah, and you, you referenced him more than ready. I'd put it to you that he's possibly the other great stallion uh, that you've been associated with. And a bit like the Star Kingdom into Dane Hill thing that you you referenced, more than ready and Dane Hill mares had a great affinity right from the off, didn't they?
1: Oh, they did for all sorts of reasons. I, I hope more than ready was going to be successful enough to be usable, you know, because I've... I thought the the stature of the horse uh, would be great for our mares. You know, the great outcross and his depth of pedigree um, would be great for for mares to have. And, and if you got a son, it'd be good. Um, you know, that that halo line was was very important. But again, he was just a special horse. He was uh, had the same sort of temperament and work ethic. And, uh, I mean, he's just he's 25. He covered 120 mares in Kentucky earlier this year, and he's got mm-hmm. 90%. I mean, extraordinary horses, and Dane Hill was like that too, fertility and work. So they're just a bit special. So we're very lucky to have had anything to do with them.
0: Other similarities. I mean, you referenced Dane Hill's temperament. Um, more than ready, always struck me as a complete gentleman. Is that a fair observation?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, he was uh, never a problem, never never savaged anything, anybody or horses, people, whatever. Um, always did, but he his um, ability to travel totally stressed. For and step off, he would arrive here on the truck, step out, and we'd pretty well go and put him in his paddock. He put his head down as if he was there yesterday, and that's the level of horse he was. And, um, but but how he niches in with again, you know, going back to Danehill, the lines of Northern Dancer through Nuria and um, the jinx. Ski, they've been a bit tried, but they were, the, they were the wrong sort of horses for our sort of racing. Mm. Dance line were the tougher, more precocious, and that fitted well. Halo was the, the line of looking at Northern Dancer, and, and he'd been so successful in South America with Southern Halo and uh, that sort of tough line. And, and more than really had that beautiful cross in his pedigree, a lovely depth of pedigree and um, turn a foot when he race, so they're the sort of things you look for that's got to be uh, they're going to be work for our industry and um, and uh, you know realizing what we've got and how you, how to work with it is uh, very important i
0: think it's really cool that you've been associated with the greatest stallion of all time in terms of stakes winners and the greatest stallion of all time in terms of winners in dane hill and more than ready and that both of them really had to get a role on in Australia before the Northern Hemisphere accepted them, right? I mean, More Than Ready's career is a career of two halves in many ways, isn't it?
1: Oh, absolutely. Both of them are the same. They're both a bit slow in their home countries. Um, I think both horses hit the market when there was a real opportunity to, I mean, certainly Dane Hill, as I explain, but More Than Ready just is our crosshorse and, uh, and now he's the... You know the most winning sire in the Breeders' Cup sort of thing. He's actually doing got really strong in America. He's he's probably you know he's having his best the last sort of four or five years. He's he's had a massive run with um, Group One winners over there, and and hence he's you know he stood eighty thousand US and it was sixty this year. So for an old horse, is still pretty good. Yeah, it's really cool. Can, can shuttle horses make a meaningful
0: comeback in this country, Peter? I mean, it that the rhetoric industry wide is that. We, we've plumbed that that genetic pool enough to improve our local breed and, and, and local size of proliferating is there a, is there a is there a champion shuttle stallion on the horizon do you think
1: um, i think that, yeah i think that there's i don't think bringing them out in tens and tens of dozens is the way to do it but uh, you know you just got to look around the world and, and see opportunities that might that may, may be you know, have something to offer um we've just got to stick to what we do a little bit you know australia is the best in the world of sprinter milers the way we rear them the way we produce them the way we race and the way our tracks you know suit them um, it doesn't and you've got to go a bit left field for stayers to make it and all that sort of thing it's a bit more difficult um, but that's that's our key to our business, and uh, you know, we can't deny that. And we should uh, n- not avoid it. But uh, pedigree is important. I think being an international product is important. I think um, certainly we should always be open, open-minded to um, shuttle stallions and and what they can do for us. And there's certain definitely certainly you know different lines that. Um, Uh, like Street Cry, what he's done out here, that sort of thing, and he's produced a wink. So we've got to keep doing it. Um, I think that it's a bit more limited, but there's certainly massive opportunity for the right horse to come out here. Enjoying the podcast? There's so much more to uncover when you
0: subscribe to the TDN AusNZ Daily Edition sales reports, industry insights, and interviews, race results with actual pedigree insight, even trivia. Go to tdnoznz.com.au and subscribe now. Let's move from four legs to two legs and, and talk people. You've often said you value people and, and the tenure of the staff at Vinery is testament to the loyalty you engender. How would you describe yourself as a manager?
1: Um I guess be lazy. I have to keep the other people to do my job. <laughs> uh, I, think that, I think if I have to go away for a, a week or two weeks, and the place falls apart, well, I'm not doing my job, and that's why I like all my area people to do it. I've got really good guy, really good people um, running each area. That goes right back to setting up those early farms of having specific areas for specialized areas. So, like, um, you know, got about five so-called managers on the farm managing their own areas and they've got their teams and give them the respect of of following through on what they're doing and and the responsibility of it um, works really well. And that goes through the office, the bloodstock team, the veterinary team, that sort of thing. So try to get everyone to own their own area a little bit and take pride in it and then be answerable for it. Um, and, And they're much more efficient at it and the care, the individual care of the horse is much better and makes the whole thing flow a lot better. So um, I've got some great people. I've um, um, got some, um, you, know, you know, people have been with me for 20, 30 years too. So that's um, either paying them too much or they're very loyal. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely,
0: and even the people that have have moved on from your Arrowfield days, they had good. I mean, I think of Wayne Bedgood and, and 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 at Vinery the Whites and 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 Melaney Cabe, and all the, these people that have uh, that have have stuck with you. My, my, I guess my question is, what you just described as giving people a certain amount of autonomy, Did, is that something? You you had to learn. Were there moments where you were doing too much?
1: Well, I guess if you do it on your own levels, you could get very bored doing the same thing every day. If you didn't feel like you had a bit of involvement, or didn't make a didn't make a difference in what you were doing, and didn't have some. Pride of ownership within it. I think that that would um, be very hard to turn up for work every day. And um, if you can involve people in the business, in the in what you're doing, and have a full understanding of what you're trying to achieve, and and share in share in the wins, and and work your way through your losses. And uh, you just due respect. I mean, I expect my staff to respect what I've got to do every day, and I respect what they've got to do, and and uh, you, you sort of go from there but the level of people we've got a bit of a style you know binary that the people we've got here are, are a bit um you know try to keep it a bit softer and, uh, and gen you know genuine type of thing so um the sort of people you have and you accumulate it um is important and but basic something you can rely on that you can sleep at night that you know that whatever's yeah. going um will be done to the best and and that's pretty well the parameters we try to follow but uh, and, you know, the beauty of this game is you've come up with a new idea and, you know, it's really, you know, everyone's interested in it and will embrace it. And so there's never any boarding that's the same old thing every day. If you can think of something new, something something more efficient and, and observe something that could be done better, um, they're the things that, that are exciting. Uh,
0: is there a, another generation coming through in, that, that you can sort of introduce to the Vinery Way? How, how, do we, how do we introduce the next generation to the breeding industry?
1: I think there's some really good young people around at the moment, um, and they're just starting to have an influence. And, and I would think in the short, in the, you know, not too long a period, we'll see a lot more younger people coming into it. They're vital. And I think probably one of the greatest things I've seen over my time is um, women what women are doing in racing, what in this industry is just fantastic. There are some spectacular people. Um, I'm, you know, probably on the heavy end of having, uh, you know, women running this operation and, uh, you know, the female jockeys and the trainers and the commentators. And it's, it's what was basically a male oriented business. And when I started to, to the level of uh, we've seen now is fantastic. So, that's a whole new introduction um, that's brought a whole, a much better balance to the whole industry and, and qualities. So um, you, you've, got a, you've got a farm, you've got horse people and horsemen, and, but you've got massive business pressure as well. So you've got to get the right people fitting in the right holes. The,
0: the massive business pressure you talk about, how do you, go, how do you go about managing up? I mean, you've worked for some real high flyers, and then the current management group of or ownership group of vineries is a laundry list of, of luminaries. What is your style when, when managing up?
1: Well, I think that that's probably not a bad indicator. I mean, there's nothing that you want to do or your people do that could create any um, trauma or embarrassment for people at that level. And um, that just gets down to discipline. Um, we have disciplines on the farm and routines. And I keep saying, listen, Every mare that arrives, you got to pretest it. Sure, we can all sit back and say, "God, she's pregnant." But you know, you, two weeks later, you ring your own and say, "Oh, sorry, your mare's not involved." she was involved when she left, and that's just a little thing. That's just pure discipline, and, and it'll save it'll save you so many times. Occupational health and safety discipline. People, young people like rules, and if you have got to have disciplines because you because one day it saves you greater trauma. Keeping up your vaccinations for your horses treating stallions the right way. All disciplines just pay off in the long run. They can be a bit laborious, but disciplines about the way you approach your business is the same sort of thing. Keep it in keeping things in perspective, building facilities that fit fit the product, and uh, having the people that, that have the the skill set to deal with the the um the animal that you've got.
0: Do you ever own your own farm, Peter?
1: I've got my own farm. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Let me let me rephrase that. Would you ever own your own commercial enterprise?
1: Coming to, to the valley was always great to have my farm and a few of my mares one day. But you know, you think of the journeys that have had, well, stupid no word journeys, but the you know, the period that we've been through with um, Arrowfield to cop on board the changes with, you know, the three farms within that that um, period. Um you know, it's very hard to say I'll go and do my own thing when you've got the opportunities of working with a product and and uh, the people, and you know, it just doesn't get any better. And then to be approached and set up a farm like Vinery in Australia was another challenge. It was exciting, and and um, you know, with the, the people I've got around me and the horses that we're you know we're entrenched with, it's very hard to to say I'll go and do my own thing because I'm sort of doing my own thing now. Yeah,
0: yeah. All right. Well, I'm, I'm about to wrap up. First of all, I'm going to do a, a quick would you rather. I'm going to give you two options and, and you tell me which one you would rather and then we'll finish with our final question. You're up for that? Okay. All right. Let's go. Melbourne Cup or the Everest? Everest. This one's tricky. You, you can plead the fifth on this one. Dane Hill or more than ready? I'm more than ready. Ooh. Hunter Valley or Mooney Valley? Hunter Valley. Beer or wine? Beer. Top lot or winner's circle? Uh, Winner's circle. And finally, if you were to be put in charge of the racing industry in this country, what would you do on your first
1: day? Holy hell. I think that... um... You mentioned the Everest before to the Melbourne Cup. I think the Everest is excited. It's like a state of origin in football. It doesn't interfere with the, it shouldn't interfere with the, 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 you know, the weekly games, but it's a massive promotion for our industry and we should embrace it that way. But I think the there's quite a bit of competition going on like that and you can appreciate what everyone's doing. But We're starting to get stuff that's a bit reactive and I hate reactive behaviour in business. So I think people should always be proactive. And um, now we've got these new initiatives, and they wouldn't have been new initiatives if everyone sat down together in a committee room and said, what about we do this? No one would come to a decision. So it needed a single-minded team to drive through and create an Everest, which is... Um, and, but now I think that there's a perfect opportunity to tweak it all. Do not um, take away the, the, the potential of what these individuals do, but also harness a little bit of the front line a bit.
0: Peter Orton, thank you.
1: My pleasure.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode of TDN OzNZ's Connections Cast, brought to you by Newgate, raising top-class resources. Don't forget to give us a five-star rating and recommend us to friends. And if this is your first Connections Cast, dip back into the catalogue. We have chats with Arthur Mitchell, Mark Chittick, Ollie Tate, and many more that are probably right up your street. And of course, subscribe to TDN OzNZ's Daily Edition for the best thoroughbred news and information in the Southern Hemisphere. I've been Angus Rowland. Thanks for listening.